Rather, the goal of this sermon is to help us have in our minds today and going forward to have in our minds two things. Number one, the fate that await those who do not obey. And number two, why it's so great that we should have so much gratitude for what we're avoiding. Right? The gratitude that comes from understanding the thing that we are being saved from. It's an uncomfortable subject, but one that is necessary if we're to have eternal life, right? This is one of the primary motivators in most of the New Testament message, right? Now, there's some other things, right, that people talk about different motivations and, and reasons for being a Christian. But one of the primary ones, and maybe the first one, is the idea of judgment. Matthew 25, 45 through 46. Then he will answer saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We talked last week about the eternal life, what that looks like, the eternal resurrection, the, the goodness of heaven. And on, on a dozen or so separate occasions, Jesus taught about this eternal punishment. Clearly, Jesus thought that this was worth talking about. Again, as a motivation, as an understanding, what exactly is it that we're being saved from? Why is it that we should be so thankful to God? This is what the reason, this is the reason we need to talk about hell. Now, there's a couple of ways to talk about this. Uh, number one, which we'll get to in the second part, I should have had these reversed. We can talk about a generic discussion of how is it described? The negative consequence of disobedience, the outcome of judgment. How is that described in more general terms in the New Testament? And we could talk about a, an examination of the words, the word for hell. There's three different words that are translated as hell. We'll begin with the words here. As we think about these words, there's, again, three different words primarily that are used in the New Testament to denote the place of eternal punishment. Now, I want to note before we get into this, you're thinking, why aren't we talking about the Old Testament? The Old Testament does have some things about the eternal fate of the dead, right? The word sheol, particularly. And yet, in the Old Testament, as we talk about with heaven, in the Old Testament, the, the ideas, the specifics of heaven and hell are not very well articulated. God did not really use that as motivation for the children of Israel. For the children of Israel, the motivation was the land promise and the, the abundance of you know, crops and, and blessing and victory in battle, right? Very physical things that God used to motivate the Israelites. And it, when we come to the New Testament then, the motivation shifts from these very physical, mundane sort of concerns to concerns of eternity. And so we see these words, the words that are used. And, and as it is with many things in the New Testament, these are words that existed before Christians existed, before the New Testament was written, before God inspired these writers to write these things down. These words existed. And rather than inventing a new word, they could have done that. They could have just invented a new word for this eternal place of punishment. But they used words that were familiar to the audience, words that already had some association in the minds of the hearers. This can inform our understanding of the nuance. The first word, uh, it's, uh, you might have heard Gehenna before, Gina, the, the Greek word Gehenna here. The Valley of Hinnon. This is a Jewish term. Now, in the Greek, of course, the New Testament's written in Greek, but this is a place that the Jews would have been familiar with. The Valley of Hinnon, south of Jerusalem, where filth and dead animals were tossed and burned. This was a real place. This was a thing that existed. And, and Jesus begins to use this word to describe what's going to happen to those who don't obey. Now, another word, Hades, you're probably familiar with the word Hades, uh, the general place of the dead, not in Jewish 
conceptualization, but now we're into Greco-Roman religion. We have the, 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 the generic place of the dead. Uh, of course, this is also the, the name of their god of the dead, right? The Greco-Roman god of the dead. And, and Hades, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but Hades was, as, as a conception in the Greco-Roman mind, did not necessarily have a negative connotation. It was just that's where dead people go. And there were some various regions within Hades that were good or bad or, or really, really bad. And we'll see that as we go through the last term, which I don't want to place too much emphasis on this because it only appears one time in the entire New Testament. The word Tartarus, or it's really the verb form of the, to send to Tartarus, a region of Hades that was more specifically reserved, this is how the Greco-Romans thought of this, for the wicked dead. And most significantly for our purposes, in, in Greco-Roman myth and legend, Tartarus was the place where Zeus cast down the Titans. Titans, of course, ruled before the gods. And of course, Zeus comes along, he throws down the Titans, and then the gods, this is, of course, Greco-Roman religion. And yet it's interesting when Peter uses this word, we'll look at the one use of this word, how Peter co-ops this word into a, a Christian concept. And so we, we think about these words, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this is uh, Gehenna, Gehenna, right? This this place south of Jerusalem, they threw all the, de- the filth and the dead animals, burn it up, it's over and done with, right? This refuse place. And his point, again, contrasting the Old and the New Testament ideas of, of death and judgment and importance, in the Old Testament, it was, again, really about the body. You're going to lose in battle. You're going to have famine. You're going to have these neg- disease, negative consequences if you don't obey. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, it was like that in the Old Testament, but now we're thinking about not just physical consequence, but an eternal consequence. You know that pit outside of Jerusalem where we throw all the dead animals? That's what we're worried about, not for our bodies, but for our souls eternally, this destruction. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, the word Hades. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What rock is that? The statement, you are the Son of God, you are the Christ. I will build my church in the gates of Hades. Now, some versions, it's interesting, just have Hades, depending on your translation. Uh, the gates of hell, is translated in the ESV, shall not prevail against it. Uh, this place of the dead... It's going to be a place of life. It's going to be a place of abundance. The church is going to be about living and, and, and being alive. And, and death will not win against the church. 2 Peter 2.4. Again, the, the one use of the word Tartarus here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, into Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... And you can see the sort of the interesting co-opting that Peter uses of this Greco-Roman idea of, of Zeus casting the Titans, these, these mythical beings of great power, cast down, no longer ruling over the earth, no longer in charge. And what is Peter saying here? That's what God did. The angels that sinned, the fallen angels, he has cast them down into Tartarus. They no longer have dominion. Their time is done. Now, interesting, seven, several English translations transliterate the word Hades. We talked about transliteration, right? You take the Greek letters and you just use the English letters. Uh, and, and they don't do that with, almost, I don't think any English translation does that with Gana. Instead, they translate Gana as hell. Hades is often used in contexts that do not under, be understood to refer to the last judgment. It's, again, the generic concept in the Greco-Roman world for the place of the dead, analogous in the Old Testament to Sheol, which they understood, right? There's a place that dead people go. Where do they go? We can think about in, in Peter's first sermon, Acts 2.31, 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Well, Jesus did not go to the place of final judgment. That's, that's not here yet. That's not, the time for that is not now. What does Peter say? The place of the dead. He went to the place of the dead temporarily, but he did not stay there. He was rather, he was brought back, right? He was resurrected, that idea. And so in, in a lot of places in the New Testament, this word for Hades, the place of the dead, there is somewhere that the dead are now, wherever that is, but it is not the final judgment. It's not the lake of fire. It's not the second death. That is the thing that awaits for Jesus' second coming, right? And so we won't dig into this now, but I just want to have that idea in, in our heads. As we think about Gehenna, this other word, is almost exclusively used for one place to refer to the final eternal punishment. And again, what is Gana? This Valley of Hinnon. This is where they cast dead things that needed to be destroyed and disposed of into fire. This idea of fire. And so we come to the second idea here. More importantly, we must consider how hell is described. What is hell? What is that place? What is it going to be? Well... Oh, of course, the primary word that's used is fire. Now, like heaven, we talked about heaven, the idea of the destruction of physical things, right? Matter and, and physical ideas, those are going to be gone. That's going to be done away with. You know, the, the, uh, the, the oxidation and the chemical process of fire and things being consumed up and burned. You know, matter is not going to exist. It's not going to be like that. But what is he saying here? In the way that fire burns and causes pain and disfigures and destroys, that's what hell will be like. Matthew 5.22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That pit outside Jerusalem. Not literally that pit, but that place, you know, where there's all that burning going on. That's what it's going to be like for those who what? You ever called, you ever said you fool to somebody? You ever insulted somebody else? That pit of fire, guys. That's what's awaiting us. Mark 9, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. The unquenchable fire. Not only is it burning, it will never stop burning. It will be forever. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15. Don read this earlier. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Again, we see the separation between the lake of fire, this final destination. We see a separation of that from the concept of Hades. Hades is a separate thing. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell more than anything else, is described as a place of fire. Have you ever burned yourself real bad? If you haven't, you are a blessed person, to be sure. Fire is a particular kind of pain, a particular kind of destruction and suffering. It is something that is used to describe a place that we should definitely not want to go, right? Isn't that the point here? 
Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man, there's some other phrases here. The Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think you've ever used the word, the phrase gnashing of teeth in another context than this. What does this mean? It's, it's suffering and torment. That's what this phrase meant. That there's just so, oh, it's so bad, right? The suffering and the torment that's going on here. Matthew 22, verse 13. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And we talked about this in our word judgment, right? The separation that's happening here described as outer darkness. And you think, well, how can there be darkness if there's a bunch of fire? These are all, right? We have to use human terms to describe some eternal spiritual place. And, and you know, the, the idea of off light, but there's there's a separation here. The darkness, what? What darkness? Well, he says it more specifically. Second Thessalonians 1 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We looked at the passage in Revelation in about heaven, right? The Lord will be with them. They don't need the sun. They don't need the stars. They don't need any lamps or anything. Why? Because the Lord is there and the Lord is their light. If the Lord is what is going to be light in eternity, again, the heavenly bodies, they're going to be gone. The sun, the stars, all those things, they're over and done. What is the light in eternity? Well, it's, it's not the sun. It's God. And if he is light in eternity... of light in eternity. So we understand that to, how do I say this? Hell is a vital part of biblical truth. We can't shy away from it because it's unpleasant. And you know, you think about, nobody like. I don't know, some people do like, I suppose, talking about hell if you're a particularly vindictive person. But I think most people don't like talking about it. But that's the point. That's the exact reason why we need to talk about it. Because it is designed, it should make you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable enough to do what? To repent. That's how they're using it in the New Testament, right? Why is Jesus talking about hell? Why do Peter and Paul talk about hell? Why do they bring it up? Because it's a motivator. It should make you feel uneasy. Because you're going to feel more than uneasy if you go there. A motivator for change. What must we understand? We must understand first that it's a place of torment, punishment, and suffering. The kind that would be caused in physical reality, again, the analogy here to fire, that's the kind of suffering that we're talking about, the kind of suffering that in our reality would be caused by fire. It is a place that is devoid of God's presence. And as a result, is also devoid of light, devoid of hope, devoid of love, devoid of peace. All these things that we would experience, the things that come from God, if hell is devoid of his presence, then all of those good things cannot be there either. And finally, must understand, it is a place that will last indefinitely, forever. These are designed to be motivating what exactly Exactly, should they motivate us to do and conclude? Matthew, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, those who say, but don't. Build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we 
our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. What is that, you know, and all the prophets in the Old Testament, Israel rejected over and over and over again. Ah, don't, we don't want to listen to that guy. And what are the scribes and the Pharisees saying? Oh, we, we, isn't that what we do? We think about the atrocities of times past. Oh, if I'd lived back then, I would. Yeah, you would have. Maybe not you specifically, but most of us would have. Thus you witness against yourselves for the sins of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, there's an, an indication here. There is an answer to the question. And I think it's, not, it's mostly a rhetorical question, right? How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The answer is you won't, but why won't they? We see how we can escape how. By listening to the prophets. Isn't that the contrast that he's making here? People, the fathers of old did not listen to the prophets. They were destroyed. You are going to be sentenced to hell because you won't listen to the prophets. And then the, for the answer for us is, if I don't want to be sentenced to hell, I want to escape that. How am I going to stop rejecting the things that God has said? Stop rejecting his servants who have told us what he wants. Luke 16, 26, the parable of the rich man Lazarus, which I will just emphasize very much, is a parable. It's a story. But in that story, we see a man suffering, separated from the man who is not. And what does he say? I want, you know, save me. Please come help me. Just give me a drink of water. Just dab my forehead with a little bit of water. Here, help me out. But why? He can't be helped. Besides all this, between you and us is a chasm in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able. There's no exchange. Heaven and hell, that's it. That's the eternal thing. There's no going back and forth between them. There's not this idea of purgatory. You're going to go to this place of hell for a little bit, and then you can earn your way. That's not happening. Once you're there, you're there. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. If they could speak, dead could speak, what would they say? Pay attention! Don't end up like us. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if they, someone should rise from the dead. The power of this story, what? This literally happened. Someone did rise from the dead. And did they listen to him? just like they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, the things that Moses and the prophets said about Jesus. They didn't listen to that. And Jesus literally came back from the dead to tell us about judgment and destruction, what is awaiting those who do not obey, and they still would not listen. The way to escape being sentenced to hell is simple, if not easy. Heed the words of God. It is that simple. It doesn't make it easy. It's difficult to do that. But one of the things that we need to do if we want to be successful, if we want to have the faith that we should have, if we want to listen to the words of God, one of the things that's going to help us do that is, and I, you know, it's not comfortable to do, but to think about hell more. There's no way around it. If you're struggling in your remaining obedient and faithful and righteous, think about hell more. And then think about how great it is that 
has given you a way to avoid it. If we'll submit to his will, right? If we'll confess him, repent and turn from our sin, if we'll be united with him in immersion, if we'll live the life he can escape the sentence. Come while we stand and sing.